Hello and welcome to the second series of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. If you hadn't heard the show before, then the idea is that in each podcast we meet a maker, designer, artist or architect who's intrinsically linked to a particular material or technique, discovering how their craft shape their lives and careers. Today, I'm in the Derbyshire studio of the sculptor and artist Laura Ellen Bacon. Now, Laura's reputation is built largely around these extraordinary, almost alien structures that she builds by weaving sticks of willow that often appear to ooze disconcertingly out of their host buildings. She's worked at places like the Holborn Museum in Bath, Barrington Court in Somerset, while the Invisible Store of Happiness, a piece she did in collaboration with furniture maker Sebastian Cox, was a centrepiece of 2015's Clerkenwell Design Week. Meanwhile, in 2017, she was shortlisted for the Women's Hour Craft Prize, and last year, her work, Woven Space, even inspired a new orchestral piece of music. Hi, Laura. Thanks very much for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. That's my pleasure. Um, I mean, let's kick off with the with the music. This is extraordinary. So this is a piece by Helen Grime, I think I'm right in saying. How did that come yes. about? Well, that piece of music was commissioned for the Barbican in London, I think. And it was conducted by Sir Simon Rattle and um, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra. How that came about with with me being involved in it, it seems amazing to me. It's what a wonderful thing to have happened. Uh, And as far as I know from Helen, the reason that that happened was because she'd seen a piece of my work at a place called Hall Place, which is um, in Bexley in London, just outside London. And I'd made a piece of work there in 2016, which she'd seen. That was called Course. And that then led Helen to my previous work as well. And Mm. at that point, then she was really inspired by Woven Space. And I'm sure you can imagine how amazing that is for, I mean, she, she got in touch and said, I hope you don't, you know, I hope this is okay, but I'm going to be um, quoting you as your work has inspired a, you know, piece of music I'm working on. And actually, she got in touch with me uh, shortly after the Women's Hour Craft Prize and uh, November, I think. And it was just the best, the best news. It was wonderful. And the the music itself was performed at the Barbican. It premiered there in the following April. And I went with my dad and we sat in a sold out audience looking down um, well, looking amongst the the audience and looking down at the orchestra, and when the strings took off in the music, it, it's just the most profound experience I've had within my creative career, basically. So I'm really pleased you've mentioned that. Thank you. That's all right. So, so woven space for those that don't know was a, a piece you did in the Museum of Derby. Is that right? Well, actually, it was made at Chatsworth, right? Okay, and it led up to. Uh, a piece that I then made in um, at Derby Museum, which was a piece called Into the Weave, which uh, what I was looking at in that piece was trying to make a piece of work that you couldn't see. It was all about the interior, so you wouldn't see the artwork, you were in the artwork. And Woven Space is built uh, was built before that, and it was built in an enclosure of very old yew trees in Chatsworth. Um, and um, again, you, you couldn't really see it until you were suddenly in the thick of it. Mm. So 
it was a piece that you could discover. Mm. Mm. Uh, and it was it was very light and it was made in white willow against the darkness of the yew. Uh, and people's reactions to that were really varied. Some people said it was like being inside a wave. Some people talked about sort of very uh, a sort of cathedral like space, although in miniature, obviously, um, because it, it sort of went up high into the into the trees. But the point was that it was all around you. Um, so it's quite interesting because there's that old aphorism that, that architecture is frozen music. Your work is quite architectural, and it's really interesting that it's it's inspired this this piece. Yes, yeah, and that it lives on in the music actually. Mm. That you know, yeah, like you say, that it lives on. So that has really given me a different, a really different perspective on these spaces that I am still fascinated with making. Um, I will hopefully forever be interested in making spaces that you can enter I really love it so to get that different perspective in such a profound way was amazing that was that it's just one of the the highlights of my um recent years I'm I'm so happy that that happened can we talk about can we shift the conversation a little bit uh we're here in the I mean, the extraordinarily beautiful Derbyshire countryside. I mean, you were brought up here. Yes. Uh, you obviously now live here. You went to the University of Derby yes. to study. Yes. What is it about <laughs> the part of the world that you, oh. you enjoy so much? Oh, I just love it. I love it. I just feel um, Derbyshire is very varied. There's the high peak, um, which is quite raw and quite bleak. And then Derbyshire's also got a softness and there's lots of low-lying valleys and streams. And um, the towns in Derbyshire are really are really nice places. But you never felt that, because I'm, I'm, I'm interested, Laurie, you never felt the desire or the urge when you were studying, for instance, which is a, a moment, an opportunity that people often take to go yeah. somewhere else in the country you didn't well, feel that need I have had phases where I've felt embarrassed that perhaps I'm not very well traveled actually but there's also something wonderful about living where you live and mm. I think that I wouldn't be doing what I do actually if I didn't feel um really settled somewhere and it isn't that I don't want to travel because I do and I love traveling for my work but um it, it having somewhere that I feel really grounded and Really, I feel really rooted mm. in Derbyshire, mm. and that's important to me. The hills nearby um, are f- are in the pages of text by um, various different writers, but in particular, there's a there's a writer who I love called Alison Utley, and the way that she wrote about the area and the natural world here really rings true with me. And I literally sort of look out on those hills. So one of the things we like to do in this podcast, Laura, is to give people a sense, listeners a sense of how and where you work. Could you paint a picture of your studio set up here, I wonder? I'd wondered if you might be a bit surprised how small my studio is. It isn't large. It's tiny. It's true. <laughs> um, someone recently described it as like a little birdhouse. It's just what I've got available at the moment, actually, but I really like it. I've got a tiny little two-storey office. Um, you can barely stand up in the upstairs part of it, but it's, it's really dinky and... Um, it's a very cosy little space where I do my design work. I've also got a very rough and ready garage space that I make work in, which serves purposes beautifully actually at the moment. And I also make a lot of work um, 
if I am making work in a studio environment, I also do a lot of my work outside and then obviously undercover when necessary. I sometimes have scaffold systems set up to create particular pieces of work so that levels and um, covering is right for the work at the time. But in the main, of course, most of my work is built on sites. So it's me that travels to the site and mm. all the material follows on. So that's that's my working working life, really. And can we talk a bit, get into your background a little bit? Um, you grew up on a fruit farm, I think I'm I right did. in saying? Yes, my dad... Um, my dad is an architect and my mum had a fruit farm. They've retired from the fruit farm now, but um, it was something that my mum and dad set up together in the 70s, which was the sort of the good life time. Mm. And they <laughs> they wanted a project and it was my mum's business. Uh, and I think there is probably something in that um, because the my mum would work in the fields outside all day and I really... Um, loved I, I sort of admired the way that she worked on her own um and she would cut out all the cane every year tie in I think there were two miles of raspberries because we once had to measure the wire that the mm. it's that the raspberries are tied to and there's two miles of raspberries and she would cut out these lengths of raspberry cane every year which are about six foot long coincidentally the length of willow not that raspberry sticks are pliable, they're not really. Um, but I used to make lots of dens in those huge piles, you see. There'd be masses of all this cut material. And then there's probably something about the dexterity of picking raspberries because although it was a pick-your-own fruit farm, I inevitably had to go and pick loads of fruit quite often at weekends for um, a few uh, orders. I'd sometimes have to pick 25 pounds of fruit on my Saturday um, and to reach into a, reach into the raspberry canes and try and pick as many as possible without crushing them in one go, you put your hand into all the sticks and you sort of you tease out all the raspberries really carefully and then you hopefully place a full hand of raspberries into the basket. I think po- possibly, and I hope I'm not trying to draw too many parallels to it, but I think possibly there was something in that, the, which sort of... The movement. The, the movement, the, 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 the being, hand, yeah. being really dexterous at that young age. Uh, but of course, with it being a fruit farm, we had we had lots of old um, hedging, which was completely outgrown because it used to be a nursery land. It was a very small part of a plant nursery, um, a Victorian plant nursery, actually. So a lot of the beech hedges, which had been grown for shelter, had shot up. So we had all these trees around, which meant that I'd got lots of places to um, play in at the weekends. And I was I was always on my own playing on my own in the weekends and I used to build I mean I have mentioned this before but I used to build tree houses and it was it was the most creative time of my life mm. I've heard you describe it as a, a creative frenzy yeah yeah I used to I think I called it a creative fire which was this you know this big it was wonderful it was great mm. can we I mean can we talk about the tree house because it sounded like quite a piece of a piece of work I mean from the age yeah. of 11 I think I yep. remember reading to to 18, you were, yeah. you were making this treehouse. Yeah. And yeah. what kind of features? <laughs> Running water? <laughs> Not quite. I think um, looking back, it was, I, I one point I wanted a fireplace in it, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> I never did it. But I remember investigating whether I could bash 
thin shield, uh, thin sheet metal into the right shape so I could have a fireplace. Thank goodness that didn't happen because who knows what would happen. But I think I had a point where I'd paper mache the interior so that it was beautifully soft. It was gorgeous. I mean, it was a mess. I mean, structurally, it was just built with whatever was available. And it was a typical treehouse in the sense that it was ramshackle and brilliant and, you know, brilliant because of its ramshackle nature. It had... And I used to chop and change it, you see, because I used to get bored. But it was built in the line of an old hedge of big trees, actually. But it was a lot. It was originally an old hedge. And there was mountain ash and beech. And at one point, uh, built between uh, the splaying trunks of the mountain ash, it was two story at one point. And on top of the, on top of the, the story, there was a little balcony at the top. Wow. It was so great. So two story, you had stairs? I had a ladder. Um, I think I got into the second story by going outside of the treehouse and sort of going back in again. And then I had a, a very small bridge which connected that second story to the other end of the treehouse because the treehouse ended up being 15 feet long from end to end inside. It was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. I can't tell you. It was. Um, I used to get tools for Christmas and my cats used to come and sit with me in the treehouse and it was great. Uh, so were, you, were your parents support I mean if, if you're getting tools for Christmas presumably they were supportive of this yeah originally they didn't know about it because I was using wood which was had been brought to us because my granddad who was a joiner had um had retired and thought it'd be really useful on our boiler so it was meant to be for the boiler I wasn't meant to be using it at all but it was such a you know it was so great to use I started using little bits of it and I don't, I'll never know at what point my parents realised and maybe pretended that they didn't know or um, at what point they just reconciled themselves to letting me do it. But they were eventually um, really supportive. And that's possibly quite a hard thing to do, actually, for a parent to let your child just uh, do something relatively dangerous, really. Uh, but nevertheless, that's, that's what kept me busy. I remember my mum wringing her hands one day saying, look, you know, you need to come inside. It's raining. This is, you know, but, you know, I couldn't be stopped. <laughs> so presumably your father being an architect must have thought that you were going to follow in his footsteps. Yeah, he may have done. He may have done. He always used to encourage me to draw. In fact, he was the first person who, being my dad, of course, he, he encouraged me to draw first of all. And he would always say... The, the lines of my drawings, probably from about the age of three onwards, they're good lines, Laura. These are strong lines. And actually that, that set me off as mm. much as anything on, um, on a particular way of working. Um, yeah. I remember reading or when we spoke in the past that um, you'd done these tree houses and then you went off to do kind of a, an arts course at, at Derby. Yes. Um, it always seems to me like you had quite a difficult time there. I really enjoyed my degree. I did a variety of different processes throughout the three years. But the thing in my head at the time was that nothing felt as creatively frenzied in a good way uh, as when I was building tree houses. <laughs> because when I've had to... I needed something that would that I would be utterly addicted to until that happened... I knew I hadn't found it. And so I did all my work. And actually, I was very interested in the architecture module that we did. I remember getting really good marks for that. Um, and um, I was very interested in the drawing side of it. Um, but 
it wasn't until right at the end of the degree that I sort of I almost sort of confessed this actually to the tutor at the time and he just said oh okay okay we need to work big so I was allowed to drag trees in to this space right so is that what you were you were doing you were using bits of old wood to create tree houses or what were you doing with them all I was trying to do was weave things around myself and I'll never really know why that suddenly became an obvious route because it did I'd gone from trying to invent new materials which I think involved rice at one point trying to compress uh, rice with with things so I could make a new material I'd gone from um and ceramics and then suddenly to thinking this this doesn't quite fit and there was something about trying to knot things together and weave around myself which meant something and tuned in to yeah tuned into something that I knew I would thrive in actually Mm. and it was really late I mean (laughs) it was really cutting it fine um but then that's what I did and I, I I I don't know whether that was luck or whether that was that was always meant to happen because looking back, you know, from a childhood, you know, there was something in that. Um, but I am, I will always be grateful to them for that. So when did you start using the willow cane? At university, because it was the only way I could get a lot of sticks in one go. Right. That's the only reason. So it's purely practical. Yeah, yeah. I started trying to um, bring in hedgerow material from home. But there's a limit to how much you can get, actually. You'd think that, you know, you could probably get quite a lot, but you can only get so much in a car. (laughs) Um, This thrill when these willow bundles arrived and I snipped open the string and hundreds of sticks just splayed in different every direction. Um, And then I learned that you soak it and then you can twist it. And from that moment on, I just learned my own process, um, which is which is the way it's always been. I've, the method I use was self-taught. Self-taught. And does that entirely? Because you know we've done public talks and things where people have asked you, you know, do you ever want to make a basket or have you ever made baskets? And yeah. your response has always been quite. Well, defensive a little bit. Do, 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 I am a bit defensive. Yeah. yeah, I'll tell you why. Um, it's because I used to feel really embarrassed that I had maybe not, maybe I ought to have learnt that skill first. Maybe I should. Maybe that says something about my character, but I didn't. I was too impatient. Um, and possibly I wouldn't be doing what I do now if, possibly I wouldn't be doing it if I had sort of gauged my if I'd gauged myself with how well I could make a basket at that early, I don't know whether it would have led me in the right direction. I really want to stress, however, that I love basketry. It isn't, I'm not, um, I'm not repelled by basketry whatsoever. I'm really not. It just isn't my skill. Mm. Uh, there is something in the way that I work, which is about a level of chaos, actually, which really comes together. And not, that's not a risk. There's no jeopardy involved at all because I know exactly what I'm doing with my hands and I can see a shape really clearly. But a basket, for example, is made very in a very highly skilled way. You start at, you start at the bottom and you work up. And uh, my work is drawn out in a sort of quite a frenzied way with lines of willow all over the place. 
which I know exactly what I'm doing with, but I I was always really self-conscious that if people saw that, they would think less of the work somehow mm. because it doesn't have that beautiful order that a basket has. Mm. Um, but then, of course, that all comes together and then the weave develops a sort of crust, really, of a very smooth weave eventually. Uh, and that's, you know, that's when the work starts to become finished and then the order comes in anyway. Because there has been, Laura, some, it seems to me, some ambivalence about your relationship with Willow. Um, you have used other materials, but I've also seen you say that you're more interested in the sight and the spectacle rather than necessarily yeah. the material. Is that yes. is that fair? Yeah, oh, that's completely fair, mm. yeah. And sometimes, you know, I wonder uh, whether that's the correct response. I used to, you know, I sometimes don't like being... I prefer to be called... I mean, you can call me what you like, really, uh, but if if roughly we're uh, referred to as artist sculptor or whatever um i tend i tend not to uh prefer the title willow sculptor because it puts the willow first mm. and because what i'm what i'm doing is something i'm trying to achieve something that's in my head i'm not trying to achieve something because i want to find ways of using this particular material so it's not that i love willow and want to find ways to use it it isn't that at all it's um, the willow is second. The willow comes second. Um, so to put the willow f- first in the title um, sort of goes against that a little bit. Not that I'm really that bothered, but I um... promise not to call you a willow. <laughs> I promise. Uh... <laughs> I mean, we talk about, but presumably the willow must uh, have characteristics that inform your work. Yes, it does. It does. Well, and what, what are they? Well, willow, for example, isn't straight. If you see it growing in the fields, it's easy to think it does grow in relatively straight lines, but it isn't straight. It does have a very gentle curve uh, and it will not so easily. Once it's been soaked, the, it's made of long fibres and when you um, twist them in the right way, then they, you know, they give way and they allow you to tie a knot. Um, so they are, there are a lot of lines for me. Um, and there's something about the density that I want. Um, accumulation is a key word in my in the creation of my work. Uh, so there's a lot of repetition, which I really enjoy. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I will have woven thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sticks in my time, um, and I really enjoy that. Uh, the smoothness of willow appeals. I think it's the length as well, because... The willow I use is one year old, which means that it's vaguely six foot. I mean, give or take a few feet. Um, You you can order it at at several lengths, but it's roughly six foot, the length I work with. So that's a kind of human size. Um, And I work with the willow in pairs as well. I've always worked with it in pairs. I think there's something more, for me, it's probably that I can get double the quantity um, than weaving one strand but it uh visually does something it's the line in between the pair which maybe does something to the balance of the, the spaces the in between the pair that's what i mean yeah. yes which um, is quite architectural again architects are always talking about the spaces in between aren't they ah mm. right yes um so there's all sorts of qualities that i do love about willow and obviously i have been using it for nearly 20 years and i still want to use it so i i do love it um 
but there's something I'm not trying to express the material I'm trying to express I'm trying to express something about the hands I think because the way that I use the willow is very immediate because I don't apart from soaking it in a water tank I don't really use any other tools Mm. it doesn't have to have a high processing level or um I can use it in a very immediate way and that's what appeals to me see it's a bit like picking up a pencil and just drawing and you know go 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 so the yeah it's the it's the ease of which I can use it that appeals and it really works for me in so I'm trying to express something about the way that um to go back to the kind of woven space uh designs that I've done before there is a a sort of human experience of being within a massive natural material uh, and knowing that that's been tied and woven by hand um, hopefully sort of has a protective quality to it or it makes it makes you feel surrounded being surrounded by something that's been made uh, is part of the appeal that I am going for Um, and to see something that's that's been woven by hand and by hand alone um, is something that I can do with Willow, you see. Mm. So it's quite interesting when you left Derby, when you left university, did you immediately find work? I mean, there's, there's nobody, as far as I'm aware, doing what you do, uh, which is, I guess, a blessing on one hand, but a curse on another. How did you find work when you left? I used to write off to all sorts of places. I used to sit um, I used to sit up in my little bedsit writing letters to all sorts of um, sculpture parks and galleries and I'd say probably one in four came back as positive and I love trying to sort of net in, you know, catch catch some projects for places that I, um, you know, wondered if the work would sit well within. And... I think I've always been quite lucky, although this hasn't reflected in my bank balance, um, but I've always been lucky in that I've probably been fortunate that I can make the type of work that I've always wanted to make. Um, I haven't I haven't ever compromised on the look of a piece of work uh, just because it's a commission. Um, and I say that's not always done me any favours financially, but it, but that's something that... You know, nearly twenty years on, I feel I feel quite lucky that they're definitely it's definitely my mm. every every piece has always been. What was the first uh, commission, Laura? First, my first commission was for a wonderful textile artist um, who I know. Um, she's called Sarah Burgess, and she asked me to make a piece of work in her garden. Um, Two thousand and one, so that was the first piece that I made. And I think a couple of years after that, one of the first key exhibitions that I was in was called Out There, which was a Crafts Council exhibition in in the what was the Crafts Council Gallery at Islington. And that was great because I was able to work on site in a gallery space. Um, and also Mary Butcher, uh, who is a basket maker and artist, she had some work there. Um, Mary Butcher continues to be somebody that does fascinate me. Her work is just eff- looks absolutely effortless and really catches the light of the the light coming down through Willow. It's and it won't be effortless whatsoever, but it 
absolutely looks mm. as if it is. Um, yeah, there were interesting people within that exhibition. And then a couple of years later, I was lucky enough to get the what was then called the Crafts Council Development Award, which is now called Hot House. Um, and then obviously that that led me to other things as well. You quite often end up working in public places. Yeah. Uh, which means you have to deal, I guess, with people when you're yes. when you're you're working because you're often outdoors. Yeah. I mean, does that bring something to the process? Uh, <laughs> yes, but <laughs> probably just nerves. I don't know. Um, people are always interested in the willow, which is great, and I'm always happy to tell them because people are amazed. If you show them how bendy a willow stick is, they they think, oh wow, if they've never seen that before, you know, it, it is it is interesting that something which will normally, you know, which you couldn't break, you couldn't fold in half easily when it's dry, is just like a piece of um, rubber when it's soaked, in a way. And so there's a lot of chatting about the material, but. I suppose for somebody like me who is, I mean, I'm quite frightened of failure, actually. And I have to, I I sort of feel fear and do it anyway with the majority of my work because it's big and it's, you mentioned the Holborn Museum. Um, I mean, not that anybody actually cares. I mean, I don't sort of fool myself that anyone cares, actually. That's the other side of it. But when you're working on the facade of a building, a much prized um, historic building where the tour buses come past every every hour or whatever, you can feel a little self-conscious. Mm. I mean, can we talk about that? But yeah. the, the, that project because it's called Murmuration, yes, and it kind of weaved in and out of the building. Um, yeah. uh, was there a brief for that? How did you come up with that particular shape? I can't remember the briefs. I don't remember the brief being anything more specific than it basically uh, involving the museum and um, the museum's building can't remember any specifics that led to the murmuration uh, theme. But I think feeling the scale of that building, which has this columns facade, which looks down this beautiful Georgian street, uh, I was trying to feel, you feel like quite high up on this balcony, which, um, which is where the work was. And I think I was just trying to sort of, feel that sense of movement and and get a sense of something swarming down through the city if you see a murmuration over a built-up area it's fantastic um I last saw one when I was just outside a supermarket and I want I, I sort of stood there in the doorway thinking everyone was just walking in and out as if it wasn't there and it was enormous I thought God, can't you see this <laughs> why why are you not stopping and having a look at this amazing thing anyway the um I think that I think that the interest in Starling murmurations was something that was um just in my mind at the time. But it is something that I'd like to continue to work on. Although I do know in the same breath that when you're an artist and you're trying to capture a natural phenomenon like that, you're almost on a losing a losing streak straight away. I made a piece of work for Collect, which was exhibited this year in 2019, and it was called And Then They Were Gone because um, it followed on from murmuration, although much smaller. But as soon as, you know, I have to face the fact that as soon as you pick up a willow stick, the starlings are gone because it's never going to, it's static for a start and it's never actually going to capture the true movement of something like that. But regardless, you can, 
look at a material in a new way. And I think there's something interesting about trying to communicate any kind of language through a material mm. it leads you into a leads you into new areas. This fear that you talk about and failure. I mean, what would failure look like in your your mind? Failure to me would be if I looked at a piece of work after I'd made it and I didn't feel like it did the big boom that I was after. Because <laughs> I think um, if I picture the feeling of being inspired, for example, to me it feels like, you know, when they blast a quarry and there's this huge, dull boom and then you know the ground rises and then all this material is released. That's how it feels in my chest, actually, when... Um, something is truly inspiring that you think wow gosh it's so invigorating when you feel inspired and um, I'm not suggesting that makers should speak about it but I find it really interesting and I'm really grateful when people speak about the process of making because for something to look effortless or for something to look at ease with itself or 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 maybe it's not that, maybe for something to just work, it has so many ups and downs on the way. I mean, there are moments when if you can't get something right, it feels like standing in an icy bucket of water for days. It's horrible. That when you, when it's like, it won't work, it's not quite working, but why, why? So talking to people while I'm making a piece of work and they're, you know, they're just quite chipper and interested uh, but actually I'm standing there thinking, no, but I, oh, you know, I, I'm trying to communicate to you that this is, yeah, this is, this is what it is and blah, blah, blah. But actually I'm standing there thinking, but at the moment, this is sheer hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it can be. And I find it, I find it interesting. You know, we, we see a lot of images of artist studios and everything's calm and beautiful and very, um, uh, very picturesque or or you know in just just very interesting and textural and but what's going on in the mind and it's it, it is really hard it's really it's really a hard process sometimes so i'm always i'm always on alert that that something's really got to work and there'll be an amount of adrenaline actually to make that happen and i think that probably should be like that otherwise I would, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't produce the right work. I like, I do like a challenge, but I, I live in fear, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> Is that fear kind of compounded when you're collaborating? So I'm thinking about the piece you did with Sebastian Cox that we talked about. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the introduction, the um, Invisible Store of Happiness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're talking about the kind of emotional uh, roller coaster that you're going on when you create a piece. If you're working with somebody else and you have to be aware of their feelings, does yes. that make it harder? I wonder. Oh yeah, I'm sure it does. Working with Sebastian was fantastic. I must say, we always said that we would definitely work together again, and and we did because we then worked um, together for a project for um, project in Milan. But um, yeah, it is it is hard. Uh, it's well. It, I suppose it's difficult to, you, you just want to make it the best for everyone. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, but it's interesting, isn't it? Collaborating is a really interesting, um, is an amazing journey to go on. And um, 
gosh, it teaches you a lot. Teaches... Well, I was going to ask what, what, what you learned from it. Well, I'm immensely self-critical, you see. So I, I spent a lot of time... Uh, when I was with Sebastian, obviously, we were using a lot of uh, machinery, which I don't know how to use. Not that that was a problem, though, because he's wonderfully accommodating and brilliant to work with. And his team... Um, Oh, his team are wonderful. So I, I just felt really at home, actually. But I think the, I think what you're referring to is that I think I remember telling you that um, when when we were trying to get that design together, I think I, I just I felt really overwhelmed by it at one point, and I couldn't to to try to sort of design something where two people's minds come together in the right ways is is, is hard. But thankfully, that was a that turned out to be um, a great project. It was me that asked Sebastian in the first place if he'd be interesting, interested in collaborating. So I was really thrilled that he was. Um, and I continue to be really inspired by him because I'm, re I'm really inspired by anybody who is driven and committed to their work and committed to their ethos and... I mean, Sebastian has a very environmental um, ethos and he really is committed to that. And actually that made me think a little bit about my ethos with Willow because I've, I've talked about it as if it's this secondary thing. And actually in the last few years, I've come to realise how terrific it is that I'm working with an environmentally uh, responsible material. That's brilliant. Um, I was working with Sebastian that, sort of shut me into that to be honest <laughs> does it bother you does it matter that your work isn't permanent that it does I mean it changes over time obviously but it does ultimately rot yes it's not forever um they can last four years uh and obviously if a brief requires um you know requires longevity then I use another material but sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't if a piece of work is made for an exhibition, which is definitely going to be temporary anyway, um, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, and the work lives on in, in photography. And, it, you know, I would, rather, I would rather do something that I really want to do in a space and know that, sadly, it will have to be, uh, it will have to be cut into unsalvageable sections just to get back out through the door. Um, I would rather do that than make something that's compromised and, you know, make something that just fits through the door. Um, so it, it sometimes it does make me sad, mm. um, but sometimes I've, it, it's, it's just the way that I work. I, I, would, I don't like sort of compromising on things. So um, then, yeah. And you've been experimenting with other materials. I mean, kind of throughout your career, I seem to remember... Uh, Blomberg, you worked with computer cables. Yes. Right. But more recently, Thatch. Yeah, I'm interested. Um, I'm really interested in Thatch. I haven't done much work with Thatch. Um, but I, um, I got a little Arts Council grant a couple of years ago to just spend time with a Thatcher and, and make something that, in which I would learn the skill. Well, I say that, blimey. In which I would begin <laughs> to learn the skill. I mean... Obviously, to be a Thatcher, you you might need to you, know, you need to train for years and years and years. But 
uh, I'm really interested in, it goes back to accumulation, you see. And um, I'm trying to design some pieces at the moment, actually, that use thatch and to express the, the volume of material um, in an area where the willow is grown. And because if you ever go into a, a warehouse where they're storing willow, it, it's it's amazing, you know, the, the piles and the stacks of willow, the volume of the volume of willow that's in there is unbelievable. And all the ends face you. And I love that texture of thatch that all the ends and they're incredibly firm, of course, because they're all battered up um, into the structure and it's it's firm and solid. Um, and there 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 are limits that, to what I can do with thatch because of the structure that is required to support the weight of it. But I think this is quite a slow burning project for me, and um, I think it could be something that I would like to um, work with in the future. Um, I mean, I also have a project on the go at the moment, which is also similarly slow burning, but hopefully will come to fruition soon and that's in stone um, using a dry stone wall method and working with a small team of dry stone wallers um, to make forms that um, make a form that comes out of a, a sloping landscape a bit like sap coming out mm. of the wood um, sort of seeping out of the land so there are there are other things that um that are ahead, but they involve working with other skilled craftsmen. So your work is about agglomeration or accumulation of material, but also these techniques that you're talking about, they're kind of heritage techniques. I mean, some of them could be on the Heritage Craft Association's red list, for instance. Yeah. Is it a conscious decision to try and um, bring them into a kind of more contemporary sphere? No, it's about coordination of hand and eye, so with dry stone walling, for example, the material is at your feet and you you handle each stone and with the coordination of hand and eye, you find where that stone goes. Um, very few tools, I mean, there are some tools in dry stone walling, of course, but they're nominal hand tools. It's relatively immediate and it generally uses just that one material. So... No, I suppose what you've just said is a good thing. That would be good. Um, that would be a bonus, wouldn't it? But it, no, it's not a conscious decision. And will the willow continue to run through your work? Yeah, I hope it will. Yeah, I hope it will. Um, we'll see. I've never been anybody who's had a five-year plan or a ten-year plan. Um, I just hope that in the future I am still doing things that give me joy because there's so much joy in actually making work. I mean, I have described the, I've, I've described the difficulties, but it's a very, very joyful process as well. Some of the happiest moments of my life have been making my work truly um, and meeting wonderful people. And um, so, yeah, I, I hope it will continue. I hope that the willow, um, will be there when, whenever, for example, I go and occasionally visit the farm where the willow comes from. It's like visiting distant family. Honestly, they, I've, I've known them for so long now and they, you know, they're, they really are sort of embedded in, in my work somehow. So 
Um, well, Laura, that's a lovely place to finish. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. To learn more about Laura's work, go to lauraellenbacon.com. There are images of the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. And finally, if you want to sponsor an episode or indeed an entire series, do drop me a line on gdgibson at btinternet.com. Thanks very much for listening.